0: So, just a short announcement before we get into today's episode. Um, Some of you have asked how you could support the show, which we really appreciate, so we've now set up a Patreon page, and Patreon is an easy way for people to uh, donate money to, in this case, our podcast, and um, if you become a Patreon supporter, of course you're contributing to making the podcast possible, and uh you'll get access to bonus material like extended episodes and of course receive our undying gratitude so visit patreon.com slash forest for more information on that Welcome to the Forest of Thought, with me, Ingrid Reeser. It's always hard to talk about our connection to nature, because the wording already implies that nature is something other than ourselves. But we're going to try in this episode. What would it mean to deepen our relationship with the world, and with life itself? Our guide for today is eco-philosopher Per Ingvar Haukeland
1: challenges again is that when we have the great separation mm-hmm. it's it's a, and it, it's an abstract so it's an abstraction there is no separation
0: right because it's think only
1: there a, is. yeah there, we think there is right. so it's our thinking that is the problem that creates this separation and nature itself is a very difficult concept because you know we tend to think of nature as something out there as forest and mm. ocean and, and mountains and so on mm. but in certain tribal traditions, there is no concept of nature. It's just home, or it's just what is. You know, It's it's life, or it's the condition of life, or mm. it's our, our greater home, or something like that. So maybe we could speak of life instead of nature.
0: Per Ingvar is an eco-philosopher and a community activist, and a professor at the University of Southeastern Norway. He studies how tradition and innovation can be brought together to revitalize the relationship between culture and the living land, and uses storytelling, eco-entrepreneurship, handicrafts, and outdoor education as methods in his work. One overcast afternoon in early October, Peringvar took me up into the forest behind his home in Telemark, Norway. We crossed a small creek and followed the path up to a spot where we strung up hammocks between some sturdy pine trees. Ted Ingvar made a small fire with the help of some lichen, birch bark and his flint and steel. The sounds of birds, the wind in the trees and the gleeful shouts of the neighborhood kids playing at the forest's edge kept us company. So now we have the fire going. We have the guarantee of a good conversation. (laughs) Um, I think there's a lot of places where we could start this uh, conversation, but I think I remember one of the first things I remember talking to you about I think the first time we met was uh, 10 years ago almost exactly when mm. I, I came here with a with a course that I was taking mm. and you you took us around the the forest and the mountain and I grew up in the mountains not too far away from here and I mm. always was very much a mountain girl yeah and I remember you saying that you had always been a uh, forest guy, uh, guy yeah. yeah exactly yeah.
1: <laughs> i was just speaking yesterday actually with a student about this because he's from denmark and he spoke about you know the closeness feeling at home in, in uh, along the ocean he grew up uh, along the coast of denmark and we were in the forest here in telemark and and i told him the stories about my reconnecting or connecting with the forest from childhood of, and and um, and that I felt, you know, so at home in the forest. I think so, in one way, I think it has to do with um, where one has grown up, you know. I grew up in Kongsburg, not far from here, just surrounded by forest, and we played. Uh, as soon as we got back from school, we, we just ran into the forest and freely roamed the forest. It was our home, it was our extended home in some sense. I mean, we had more fun there than in any playground or in any other uh, places in the garden of people's home or something like that. We couldn't compare at all. So um, I think th- something has to do with the way you grew up. In the northern Norway, you know, I I was doing some research there and they didn't have any trees there. I was just sort of feeling a little naked, you know, (laughs) feeling not quite uh, at home. It was strange, but when you realized, when you spoke to them, you, the people lived there and grew up there, they had a kind of openness to it. It was Mm -hmm. always like their minds were um, expressing that Mm -hmm. kind of nature. They were, it was, they were, it was very windy Mm -hmm. in that area. So that you know, their minds were fluctuating a lot, like mm-hmm. the wind, you know. And there was, it was is very open, and, and they were also, also speaking loud. Mm-hmm. Whereas in uh, <laughs> in the forest, you you don't speak very loud in the forest. And, mm-hmm. and and when you when I when I camp, I always put something behind me, you know, like a like a, 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 a maybe some rocks or some mm-hmm. kind of hill or something, so that I have a expression or a a view outward Mm -hmm. I think maybe that's something ancient too that the forest dwellers we were having uh, to uh, be be aware of what's going on behind your back so Mm -hmm. you you have something shelter in the back and then you can look forward you have everything Mm -hmm. because things come very quickly out of the forest you know like the moose or or some animal or something else but Mm -hmm. more or less so I I still do that actually when I'm even in um, a cinema, or at the bus, I go back in the bus, you know, in order to have something in the in the back. I think the way we grow up, that our minds, our habits, and our just way of being, is linked to um, that kind of ecosystem or the natural surroundings. At the same time, I do feel that there is some deeper connection to the forest for me, and one of the that may has to do with. That once upon a time, our ancestors were living in in the trees they were mm-hmm. you know tree dwellers and mm-hmm. and before they came down to the the open areas uh, they were tree dwellers, so it's kind of that connection perhaps as well mm. absolutely yeah
0: um, so you've you you, you grew up uh, s- spending a lot of time in in the, in the forest out of doors, yeah. and then now you're you're working uh, as a professor, teaching eco philosophy, outdoor life, and other and other things. Could you say a little bit about um, and and somehow those those things are very connected. Yeah, uh, I guess yeah. for you. So could you say something about that journey a little yeah. bit?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a good good thing. Actually, I am, I, um, if I may, I, I might I might take you back to my childhood and and and, and, and tell you about one story one incident that happened to me around the age of five years old Mm. because we were playing Indians and cowboys in in the forest this was in the early 70s Mm. and 1970s and and uh, nobody wanted to be cowboys everybody wanted to be an Indian and my my older brother was two years older than me Lars he was a kind of uh, an, an old Indian soul in a young Norwegian body, you know. (laughs) And uh, he, um, he sort of, he just embodied that kind of spirit of the natives and he he read everything and he dressed up like Indian and I just followed him everywhere. So I was doing exactly the same that he did. And one one day, um, well he had a habit that when we, the way natives, um, and not just Indians, but also the Sami people had similarly uh, relations to, uh, uh, to uh, to nature and, and, and we also found as much inspiration in the, in the Sami, but it was especially Indian tipis and so on that we we were exploring and using and having camps and so on. But when we walked in the forest um, together, a, a pack of of uh, young kids, both girls and boys, maybe about 20 kids. Uh, my my brother was the sort of the the chief, and when we came to a, a, a creek, he would ask for permission to to pass the creek, and he he threw out uh, a little, um, maybe a small acorn or something to to sort of give a gift to the creek, and then he asked to it to that we could pass it. So we did that, and mm, and one, and he also said that when we were to make a camp. We should find the biggest tree around the area and we should go up to it and put our hands uh, on its uh, big trunk and, and, and ask for permission in a humble way. And I've, so, I've seen him done that many times. I, I didn't understand. You know, he always came back and said, oh yeah, we got the permission. And I, uh, <laughs> but this one particular day he was asking me, now could you, um, could you do it? Mm. and uh, I said okay and I went up to that I looked around and see I had to f- you know there's a kind of I have to do this right you know So I have to find that biggest tree and I found this huge uh, um, Norwegian pine tree and 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 I gave went up to it and I hold um, onto um, its trunk I could feel its its skin uh, in, inside my hand and and it was like just strange in, in at the beginning and then I closed my eyes and I asked sort for permission, could we please camp here um, honorable elder of the trees and so on <laughs> and, and I heard him say something like that and suddenly I felt a warmth I- inside my hand mm. it was very strange, it was just almost like there was a sort of a, a warm spell coming through from the trees onto my hand mm. it was so striking that I actually quickly drew my hand back and I, I, I almost fell down on the ground and I was looking up on the tree and it just sort of leaned towards me mm. and it took its huge uh, branches out in the open and it's sort of, almost like it was holding the out for me taking me in into a sort of a caring, um, a, a, a caring kind of hug or whatever but and he was he was saying um, I could see inside it's an image of hearing the voice of saying, you know, thank you for asking and you're welcome, you can camp here. Mm-hmm. And I, I ran down to my brother um, and I said to him, oh yeah, it said we could camp here, it was permission and it was just fantastic. <laughs> and he said, of course, you know, when you ask it properly, you will get permission. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time in my life that I actually discovered another Being mm. communicating directly to me. Mm. After that I've had, you know, numerous incidents of that kind of thing. I've had, you know, dogs, of course, we, we know it with our dog and horses mm. or cats or whatever. There is a communication there and, and many people communicate with their plants and so on. But that was my first time. I was about five years old mm. and it was just striking and that I realized it opened a whole, sort of emotionally opened a whole door to a world that I, I didn't realize, that actually these were living beings, they were unique personalities, they had, I would now say soul, you know, they have spirit or soul, that it was just, they were personal in a sense, and and they were actually someone we could have a direct personal relationship to, each mm-hmm. and one of them. So mm-hmm. suddenly everything in the forest became alive and enchanted in that way. Mm-hmm. And I was just so thrilled it was, I remember that I just never felt alone in the forest since then. Mm.
0: so w- when we were when we were talking a bit earlier about um, what things to touch upon in this uh, conversation, you were also mentioning how this this uh, you began with very much this enchanted a feeling of being in an, an enchanted yeah. world, yeah. so to speak, and that um, this relates maybe to you know, the, a greater mythical story about who we are as humans as well. Do you mm. want to say something about that? Yeah,
1: yeah, good. Well, I think that I love that title of your program, Forest of Thoughts. I mean, that's beautiful. I mean, it really is something I really connect to. Uh, I, I thought that was really great. Mm. And and the forest are the trees could be a sort of metaphor, maybe through our conversation, too, because in a way, I. I think of the human development in in three great stories, mm. and that in a way these stories are connected to trees
2: mm. yeah.
1: and uh, the first story I call the the great um, union mm. and or you could call it a great community, great fellowship, but it's a great union, a feeling of oneness with all mm. and in our Tradition, we could call it in the mythical tradition of the Hebrew, the Arabic, and the Christian traditions, um, the Garden of Eden, you know, where a garden where everyone sort of were living in, in, in a kind of balance with each other, in a sense of community with mm. each other. Mm. Uh, of, of course, it has its <laughs> things there, and I, it has nothing to do with, I don't see it as a, as a kind of gendered situation or, or as a harmonious situation. I just consider it as a kind of a balance. So mm. let's say when we lived in the trees and we were, we were, uh, our ancestors were living as tree dwellers. Mm. They were living in a kind of fellowship, a community. You see it in nature too. There's a community here. There's a, it's not a, it's not a individual beings here. They're all living in communities. So even in trees, see the the lichen on this tree just behind us here mm. isn't that part of the tree mm. so what about the bird's nest on the top of that that's too also part of the tree so it's the, the it's, and the and the roots and all the fungi in the in the in the ground and so on all mm. of that really belongs to this greater community it's just a sort of a, a union of of um, oneness running through the forest like that so i think that in a way humans were in that balance but then in the story we could speak of three aspects of that story one aspect would be how we understand nature and nature itself is a very difficult concept because you know we tend to think of nature as something out there as forest and Mm. ocean and and mountains and so on Mm. but uh, and perhaps we should in certain tribal traditions there is no concept of nature it's just home or it's just what is you know it's it's life or it's the condition of life or mm-hmm. is our our greater home or something like that so maybe we could speak of life instead of nature mm-hmm. in that regard but anyhow the way we see life unfolds as nature or natural born as a, as a sort of evolving into its being um, in that community, there was a kind of enchanted world. So everything was speaking. Even the snakes were speaking. Mm. So that it, it was like everything had personality and everything had life. It's, it's like that world, this story. It's, it's the story I lived as a child. Mm. You know, before I started school, it was a, it's a story in which we, we all sort of lived in an enchanted world. Mm. Everything was animated. It was soul in all beings. Um, And I think in that community, in that world, the sort of great union of a community, it was a community of friends, at least the way I saw it. It was friends and relatives. So that it was not just that pack of young kids running around in the forest, but it was also expanding the community to that creek that we passed over. It was a relative or that old tree. It was a kind of elder for us and a guide, perhaps. And, And even though we couldn't have fully grasped of this at that time at least I didn't my brother may have uh, but anyhow he um, I found that this whole world was magical it mm. was enchanted it was magic really magic mm. and the culture was a, a, a sort of wild and um, evolving beautiful culture of friendship and relatives and community The what I learned of myself in that World, that story was that. Really, I was important. That tree, that tree spoke to me directly. Mm. You know, it, that tree, it mattered what I did. Mm. What I did, I reciprocated. Mm. So when I touched a tree, it touched me. Mm. So we touched each other. Now, the second story that I would tell then is the story of the great separation, because mm. in that moment i started school something happened Mm. and i've been since very concerned about education or Mm. working on pedagogy and education also because i i don't want kids to have the same thing uh, as i do we are now in the forest just about you know 50 100 meters from my house i live just at the foothill of leafy mountain and in the forest here i have built up a lot of teepees and camps and stuff for sit spots and so on for my kids who are now 19 and 18 mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and now we're here maybe you can hear it in the background There are some kids playing in those teepees and those uh, mm-hmm. along the creek down there and and so it just continues it's a very nice beautiful thing that the children are able to freely roam mm-hmm. by themselves in the forest but when we came to, to school time for me something happened nature was all, all, almost objectified, mm. that en- enchanted world became disenchanted. It was almost like the soul was taken out of the trees and the, and the beings, our relatives. They were like called birch or pine or, or lichen or whatever these kind of names and categories were. But for us they were persons. I mean it was that creek. It wasn't mm-hmm. any creek. It was that creek mm-hmm. and it was that pine that was standing there as an elder. And they had just you know, because of their position they had their they had the view of life from there, so nature became objectified, mechanized and and industrialized, commodified in you know, all these kinds of words that separates us so the great separation is really taking place when we start eating of the tree, the fruits from the tree of knowledge i think mm. it's it's something happened in our human evolution or development when we started to reflect and abstractly think of ourselves in a sort of distant, maybe separate way. Mm. You know, that we are special, we are, we are masters really. So we should be in the center of everything. Mm. So that kind of human centeredness became quite evident in that great separation. And I think that took away our connectedness to the greater um, sense of community then. So um, we became disenchanted from this magical world. It became just a world of objects for our purposes, unfortunately. So this is the second story, and I, I find that my school was training me to this, unfortunately. Mm. The third story, which I re, um, w- which I think is now taking place, and we're in the midst of, and we are speaking of it, and we're living it, I think, uh, too, even though this great separation is still there. And that's what I call the great reunion. Mm. Because I do believe that, especially from my friend Arnie Ness, you know, in the 60s and 70s, his playful ways of reconnecting to nature in his... uh, this deep ecology movement you know and the movement towards reconnection really in some mm-hmm. sense but what he what and he maybe
0: you could say a bit because because uh, yeah. i guess m- m- yeah m- some people <coughs> might not know on in was a um, was probably norway's most famous philosopher at least internationally yeah. i would say and he he was a big part of kind of a sort of yeah a, a reawakening of a Ecological kind of consciousness in the in the uh, West, I I guess. But maybe you could, and you worked quite a lot with them. You could say a bit of something about Arne, maybe.
1: Right. Well, yes, for sure. Um, I think that my um, first meeting with Arne was actually um, when I was also around five, six. Because when I was um, around five, my uh, my father. built a cabin mm. nearby Ustose which is uh, nearby um, a huge mountain, the Hallingsgarve, that also Arne had built his cabin mm. for about 60 years before then uh, in, uh, in uh, 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 f- higher up in the mountains we thought he was a kind of crazy guy uh, living <laughs> in this mountain. We thought he lived there, you know, and we, we really didn't I didn't know him much We was a little bit scared of him and so we knew his name and so on, but when I came to the States I lived in um, Kongsberg Norway until I was 18 and then I left for the States until the Midwest I took my my uh, bachelor there mm-hmm. at the Southern Illinois University and and um, wanting to go to work on international studies actually so i continued i wanted to continue with that in uh, university of oregon but when i came to oregon it was it was a magnificent feeling to come there it was almost like coming back home because Mm. the forest and the rivers and i was missing it i was always like it was awakening within me Mm. this kind of relationship to nature so i just started to roam in the forest and the cascade mountains and three sisters area built a forest or a a shelter there uh, out of just uh, wood and and, uh, moss and so on and I'd lived there for two three weeks and when I came back to the University I I, I saw there was a, a course in eco philosophy but I was always already three weeks late into the course and all the students they were gonna pick two writers or persons within the environmental movement or eco philosophy movement that that uh, they should write about and I, I there was only two names left uh, because everyone had, else had picked and it was arnie ness and uh john muir mm. and now become two my heroes in many in, in respects and and arnie ness um i knew again because of mm. that my childhood in mm. those mountains and i thought what does what he to say about nature and you know connecting to nature. I didn't even know about deep ecology that in 1989, and um, and I but I I started to read him at that point and I thought my God this is fantastic. He was speaking about the ecological self, you know, the extendedness to ourselves into nature. He was speaking about these deep meetings with mm. nature, and he was speaking of other. Creatures as personalities, and and he wasn't using the word soul, but but that they were individuals in the sense of you could connect to them as individuals and spontaneously, and he was speaking mythopoetically at the same time as he was a, you know a heavy duty intellectual, you know a logician mm-hmm. and yeah. a philosophy professor at the University of Oslo, and at the same time was opening these doors to reconnecting to yeah. nature deep ecology and what he called ecosophy so i i i looked him up i i after a year in oregon i said i have to go back to norway Mm -hmm. and i looked him up and and uh, our first meeting we were speaking about our relationship to Mm hallingsgarve and it's yeah the mountain and its great soul Mm -hmm. he wanted us to he wanted me to say about you know what what did i what did i experience and we were speaking so close, and he invited me to go to the, his cabin up in the mountains, which is North Europe's highest private cabin, actually, okay. uh, in or in in uh, in, in the Northern Europe, it's very harsh climate. The roof has blown off three times, okay. and he bought that. Uh, he, he built that in 1937. But anyhow, we went up there, and and uh, after that, he said, "Well, you are um, a cabin person, which is kind of." Uh, a stamp of, uh, of guarantee, approval. you know. <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's a good approval thing. So he, he then said, you know, well, you can. You're all right. If, if yeah, you're all right. So, so he invited me actually to share office. So we shared office together for two years, from 1990 to 1992. We were sitting on the same desk. He mm. we was sitting on one end, a long end, and I was sitting on the short end, <laughs> and we were collaborating. And then when I did my PhD at Berkeley. From '92 to '97, he was coming and visiting me, and and, uh, and then I also realized, especially in the states or the English-speaking countries, that the uh, deep ecology was, you know, huge, and, and so even deep, and
0: deep ecology is kind of deep the, the movement that he has, yeah, uh, in a way founded, you would say.
1: Yeah, well, he described it in a way. I think I would, I would say that he just described something when he was in 1972 he was looking back on the 60s you know Rachel Carson's the silent spring Mm -hmm. the different environmentalists that were coming up in the 60s and when in 1972 Arnie Ness was looking back on on this movement and he was describing and said there's two strands to the environmental movement one he called shallow ecology He, he regrets that word because no one wants to be shallow but he called them reform ecologists later mm. would mean that people are saying it 's important to take care of nature because of human purposes it 's mm. good for humans and and uh, let 's say take care of the Amazon because there 's so much medicine, potentially medicine there, and mm. so on the Amazon forest and um, uh, I think that what um, he felt it was a kind of anthropocentrism. Mm. And that their arguments were more along the lines of technology will solve the answers, or, mm. or economics, or business, and so on. Well, then he said there is another part of the movement. He called the deep ecology movement, which were some people were applying a, a pro approach to the ecological crisis that sought more deeper into the way we think about ourselves and nature mm. about the way we live our lives and so on. It said mm. that we need a deeper almost a revolution mm. or they would say a revolution in our way of thinking and a way of being mm. in the world and that this revolution was also opening an awareness to that we live in a more uh, a world of a more let's say a kind of uh, a web of life in which we are living in a greater community. We are not any sp- special in that sense, that we, all, all beings are part of that web of life, in a mm. sense. So he called that ecocentrism. Mm. He didn't mean to take humans out of nature. Some mm. misunderstand that, and they yeah. think that it's taking humans out of nature, so it becomes nature-centered. But then they're trapped in that cultural dualism. You know, mm. where there's either nature or humans. But mm. in the nor, in the Arnie Ness context, there is not that kind of dualism. So that he would say it's just that everything alive has intrinsic value. Everything alive has value insofar so it is part of this greater web of life. Mm. And that's that's also caused quite a bit of trouble because um, this notion intrinsic value seemed to be very, you know, what's, what does that mean? Does it mean that the mosquito has the same value as a human? Mm. It's not, That's not what it means at all. It just means that um, if it's if it's alive it is in the same it's in the web of life mm. similar to to you are so you cannot mm. say that the mosquito is less alive than you mm. so there's a biological egalitarianism there which means for him that intrinsic would mean that it has an inner life mm. and that it has a way of being part of something greater mm. so it has a kind of personality aspect to it so maybe in the or maybe like Carl Jung-inspired um, environmentalist would say it has soul or self. You know, it has a self mm. instead of that.
0: There's a feeling of there's a feeling of what it's like to be a mosquito.
1: Yeah, exactly. and That the mosquito has a has a kind of a, uh, a it, it has a, a personality in the sense so that you can actually uh, in a way get a each mosquito is a unique being in some sense. Mm. Actually, the great writer in Norwegian uh, writer called. Uh, New Thompson, who wrote uh, The Growth of the Soil, wrote a beautiful essay on a, fl- on a, on a fly, a mm. small fly. Mm. So he just were playing with this small fly. And you could say it has its own life. It has its own sort of uh, way of being. And you can connect to it. And that's really all he says. That's all Arne says, is that there is a kind of deeper connection to all beings. And that this is, could be internal. There's a way we identify with or we can internalize that relationship to that other and it becomes part of who we are. Mm. It extends our understanding of our self. That's what he called the ecological self. Mm. That was quite inspiring for many people. And we felt that, you know, the, the notion that this deeper meeting of identity identification or or reconnecting to to the life or personality of another was actually quite quite inspiring Mm. so when i came back actually from berkeley i did my phd i i wanted to look up that old pine tree who was in um, who i saw as a child Mm. to honor it yeah because it's it started there i felt yeah so i i remember i went up to kongspur i wasn't living my parents had moved from kongspur at that time but i i i looked up the place and i I passed the creek, and I couldn't help for just throwing down a small acorn and asking for permission to cross the creek. <laughs> and I was smiling as I crossed the creek. He said, yeah, it felt good. And then I came over the, the hill, look, and, and looking out to where the, the huge uh, pine tree was. And as I came on top of that hill, I looked out, and I felt an enormous loss, because it all was cut down. Oh. The whole forest was clear-cutted. And it was supposed to be a a, a new place for uh, houses, building, mm. development area. And I was looking out, and I was searching out in between all those dead and you know broken limbs and and mm. torn out of these trees. I was seeking out this huge stump of that pine tree. Mm. And I was sitting there, and I, I felt a sadness, mm. a great sadness, because I felt that in a way. We lose something by not seeing this individual, this tree, this old elder, what it had experienced, what it had life. We it was just cut down with no knowledge of what it had sort of its life, and and it's not that I am against cutting down trees in order to use it as a, uh, mm-hmm. in, in 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 as a table or something but it's trying to honor the qualities of the trees. Mm. And I see nature, or, or what living beings, more like a, a thread of longitude, that mm. it's a kind of a long thread. So we are not just a still image here, yeah. but we have a long story and we all transform in some way. And the trees will also transform. Mm. So if the trees transform into a beautiful table or some mm. some boat or something, I think it, it the, the, the element it will feel feel kind of Happy about that kind of transformation. I don't mm. think about you know. I, I can turn into that boat and so on. But maybe if we do not feel sensitive to the qualities and the personalities of the tree, mm. which many craft people do. You know, mm. handcraft people are very sensitive to the qualities of nature's you know different uh, elements in nature. And mm. I find when they honor that, when they when they honor that qualities, they I think they honor that tree and that's part for me a very uh, kind of very beautiful thing Mm -hmm. and maybe some people would say it's a very instrumentalist view but I don't see I don't think Arne too saw that as a problem that you can both respect the tree for its personality but Mm -hmm. you can also use that tree as you would use your friend for help or Mm -hmm. something like a guide or something when you move or whatever so so that intrinsic value and instrumental value doesn't necessarily collide. For mm. me it's all about trying to be honoring or aware of its qualities in that relationship. Mm. And uh, and to do so you, you you develop a sense of respect or awe. You you don't you don't take trees lightly
0: then. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what, what you've been saying now, this movement that you sort of experienced in, in your life, from, you know, finding yourself in this enchanted world to this, the great separation, yeah. and then, and then finding, uh, you know, as a grown-up, yeah, the, uh, mm. a, 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 the great reunion, so to yeah. speak, finding a yeah. way to reconnect, yeah. um, and, uh, and I guess this is also describing a movement, uh, that we're maybe seeing in our in our culture at large and so and that, and it could be that we are the separation has has uh, kind of gone so far to a kind of breaking point that it's it can no longer it, it's no longer possible to sustain this separation and so that we're sort of almost forced into also um a, a reconnection mm-hmm. or we're also longing for this reconnection too To something deeper and then at the same time we have the situation that well most of us At least half of of us live in cities, you know in Mm. the world Um, or and and most of us are also engaging with uh, Human-made environments sure for most of our day. Yeah, and uh, we are also I mean more and more we are uh, afraid I guess of the uh, what what is not human made because we don't mm. know it? You know, mm-hmm. a lot of uh, I think a lot of kids yeah. Yeah. Uh, t- today as well. It's kind of like uh, mm-hmm. the the forest is a place where yeah. there are ticks and insects and mm-hmm. possibly bears and mm. you know it's uh, it, it, it's not necessarily a, the relaxing experience that uh, or uh, or uh, uh, the deep experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it could be-hmm and so there's also a question of this um, how do we um, what does that reconnection mean in this kind of world that we that we find ourselves in yeah uh, and also how we can well maybe we should just start there yeah
1: well let's start there yeah good question good mm. good topic I think that one of the the challenges again is that when we have the great separation, mm. it's it's a, and it, it's an abstract. So it's an abstraction. There is no separation. Right. We just think only there a, is. Yeah. There, we think there is. Right. So it's our thinking that is the problem that creates this separation. So for mm. example, there could be a separation between the urban and the rural. Mm. For example, you you say that nature is out there and mm. we are here in culture. Yeah. That too is this kind of abstract separation. I don't see any any uh, that kind of separation mm. but i do see a consequence in physicality mm. or in the facticity of the world of this line of thinking this mm. train of thought which mm. is very different from your forest of thought right. you know the forest <laughs> of thought is a kind of a, a web and a, a relational dy- dynamism mm. a train of thought is sort of one track mind you know mm. And I think that's the, the, the thought of separation, it's a one-track mind. Mm. And it is an abstraction. Mm. But it's very, very important to, to understand and realize that nature is everywhere. It's mm. like with the air, we cannot survive without it. So air is everywhere. So, and, so that even in the cities, it is, uh, nature is everywhere, of course. But uh, it's something which is very, very important to see and understand. Like when we spoke about the craft person relating to the qualities of, mm-hmm. of, the, of the tree or whatever. I think that when we, when we try to form nature in our image in mm-hmm. some way, master it, you know, mm-hmm. to create someone or something in our image, we are less in tune. Mm-hmm. It becomes less of a sip- reciprocity. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's not a co-forming. It's mm-hmm. a kind of one way, mm-hmm. one track and i think that really imposes a structure or a form onto our life mm. that all the elements the natural elements in that life becomes trapped mm. in forms that they don't feel this is not me i mean I, <laughs> it's like with the ikea table you know the poor little tree left in that ikea table that I, ikea you know that well, that's, that, that's not me. I, I don't want to be here. No, <laughs> I, I, it sounds maybe ridiculous. But in one way, it's a very mechanized. If you, know, if you notice that, like you mentioned with the urbanization, is that 100 years ago, in 1905, Norway had its independence. About 80-90% of people lived in rural areas. Mm. Now, 100 years after, in 2005, 80% lives in urban areas almost. Mm. So it's, it's, it's taken so short. Mm. And all in 1905, we lived in a handcraft society, so in a, in a way, we lived in a traditional community where people were attuned to these qualities. The forests were their bank; that's where their money was. That's where their resources was, and, and and that's how they were, because they were dependent on caring for the forest in order to survive. They were. They were in need of that. They they couldn't take down the whole forest. That would be total madness. It would be like taking out all your money in the bank at one time to have a great party or something. So that kind of life in the traditional communities were more tuned into the diversity and the qualities of, I would say, natural Mm. beings. I think that that's what we have lost a little bit. That's part of the great separation. So when we're speaking of reconnecting, there is that other tree in the garden. If we are speaking of the garden, the tree of life, and that has been very important in all Kabbalistic uh, in all mystical traditions, even Kabbalah and Sufi and other traditions, that that they are. Um, what is it? What is the tree of life? What are? What is the tree? The fruits of the tree of life, and I think that that's what. Is all about reconnecting us to that life force, that vital force, mm. which we are all a part of, which is we are all one. There is life is one. That's in my intuition. Mm. So that there is a oneness to it, mm. even though it's all unique, plural expressions. Beautiful. Every life is unique, mm. but at the same time, it is expression of that one vital force. That I could mm. call life on Earth mm. and so on. So so for me it needs to be um developing or shaping the mm. cities the urban life in a way that is more tuned mm. to those forms being able to express themselves in some sense right. so let the trees grow the way they want to grow don't just force them into a shape you see it look like that or let let the uh the birds build their nests you know let them uh, you know, let things, um, let the light come through the forest, uh, through the cities too, so that don't all have, uh, you know, artificial light that takes away the stars, and so on. So it's it's a it's a little bit of of trying to tune oneself into also um, how the cities could be more livable in a you know mm-hmm. what you could say a, a more uh, revitalized way. I think.
0: Um, just related to what you were saying now, mm-hmm. uh, it, it makes me also think about think about how we could be, because, um, c- like you said, it's interesting this separation. Yeah, I thought that was a really good point. That the separation is is only in the abstract. I mean, it's only an illusion mm-hmm. because we are uh, completely embedded in you know all of the processes uh, of life, and we're we are. Uh, you know, we continuously need to take in energy uh, and excrete waste in, o- in order to be able to sort of maintain our uh, our functioning as yeah. an organic body. And so we're, you know, we're very clearly a, a metabolism and a process that is part of a the the bigger metabolism and process. Exactly. Yeah. And um, and I think that. Uh, I mean, as you know, I spent uh, about a year living m- much uh, more up in the mountains than I <laughs> yeah. do uh, otherwise. So mm-hmm. living in a in a cabin where there, to which there was no road, and um, I think that uh, and what what struck me living there was that it was so much easier just to remember how much we're part of the metabolism because we had to you know we had to carry water yeah. or if there you could see like it was after the the big uh, forest fires it was the year after the big forest fires in, in right. Sweden and it was super dry everywhere yeah. and so the well ran dry and um, there was very, very little water mm. and uh, and so you you really notice yeah where is the water coming from and how much how much do I need to carry it yeah. for for today yeah. and um, and of course uh, it, there's no you know so you're having to deal with your own shit (laughs) (laughs) and uh, and that's also uh, you know a very clear way it's just it just becomes very obvious that you're a part of this uh, metabolism and 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 in when I'm living in you know the city or closer to the city uh, this very obvious relationship is obscured by these things that we have built like it's kind of magical that the sure. water just comes out of the tap and sure. the shit is whisked away yeah. in uh with clean water off to it's kind some of place a different
1: kind of magic though isn't it yeah. kind of like, i wouldn't yeah but it is it, it, it's a kind it, of you know a, it, we, uh, we
0: don't it's not like i know how it works and yeah uh, exactly really. and so
1: but it's it's a kind of that that uh, that magic which says that out of mind out of out of sight out of mind isn't it like that you know right. like you it, don't things see suddenly disappears yeah like a you know like a white from, rabbit or whatever or something yeah exactly it,
0: it. right exactly the water comes out of the yeah, faucets so. like the rabbit out of the top hat yeah um and so but i think that that doesn't mean that we can't uh be aware of um of our interrelatedness also when we are wherever we are living
2: exactly uh, I and i think yeah, yeah
0: but point. and i but i think that it's just much easier it's just much easier when you're in a place where there is less of this uh, technosphere and man-made things mediating between it Uh, it's it's easier to remind yourself and so uh, um, but but i'm also thinking about how also in in uh, the city in a city apartment where i uh, used to live you know everything everything around us is also made i mean everything in the world is made of the same stuff Uh, it's just composed in in different ways, and I mean the the the, the cement that or rock yeah. that the building is built with is yeah. is taken from uh, uh, from the earth somewhere, and um, I mean so I am also made of yeah. I'm also made of carbon molecules and uh, all all kinds of different things. So so it is that we it's very obvious that we're we are made of the same things. I mean uh, a plastic. Pen is made from oil that's made from uh, you know leaves that were collecting sunlight millions of years ago. But and and so the question is then just like it's likely like you're you're saying. I mean sometimes it's it's easier to it's easy to imagine how uh, a, a tree uh, can can more easily retain its quality and express. It's a sort of nature or personality in a handmade um, cup or a handmade table yeah, or something yeah, like that. Yeah. And so the challenge I guess for us is like how do you retain then this expression, this quality mm-hmm. also in when, it, when, it, when it, the task is much more difficult, say yeah, yeah. building a big house or yeah. uh, oh,
1: good good. Point. It's it's very difficult to say. I, I, one other, one the thing I, I would say about it is that you're totally right. That you know everything is made of the s- same elements, but not all things are Have the same. Well, they're alive in a sense too. I, I'm actually. Mm-hmm. A, quite a radical ontologist on that part because <laughs> I, I learned it from Arnie Ness too because mm. in a way you know the cup that he was using at Tvergastain was certainly having intrinsic value it was a living being you know what and 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 the stove that he had brought up there it has uh, intrinsic worth and uh, all of that is is um, and I do believe that that all things may speak in that mm. sense and, and and perhaps it is because uh, there is a, a element of nature within mm. all things but I do feel there is a distinction between form, the mm. way we f- pose impose form on mm. something and the way it freely Expres- moves, it expresses mm. itself in some sense and like I said with the tree, the IKEA ta- table or a mm. handcrafted table like what you say about awareness, mm. it's all about an awareness and I think the awareness of the qualities of of you know, uh, nature would, would be quite different if you see it simply as an idea to um, your purposes. Mm. Or if you are working as a craft person would do, if you craft a table, he would work with the, the tree, the material. Mm. The materiality is a co-shaping, it's a co-forming. It's like the meaning is not something we imposes on nature. It's something that appears, emerges in between.
0: Yeah, and because that's 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 interesting that you you were uh, talking about sort of the natural inclinations, if we should should call it that. So if if uh, you know each living thing maybe has a natural inclination towards uh, its in its uh, development. Yeah. And flourishing and and, and, and unfolding, and I think that. But I think related to what you said previously, I think maybe an important thing is not to think that we should try to then um, remove ourselves as much as part as possible from the equation. Because I I guess the reaction to the immense destruction that we kind of wrought on the rest of the planet is that we have come to sort of despise ourselves and Mm -hmm. not trust that we can really be a regenerative force. that we have to find a way of bringing ourselves into the equation that is uh, where we can sort of trust ourselves to be really uh, creating something uh, our ability to create something beautiful in this process and not but not just in the uh, you know uh, Mm. making something. it's easier when you can be in such direct and intimate contact Mm. as if you are um uh, making something from uh, one yeah. whole piece of wood for example yeah. but bring a, but but bringing that bringing that intimacy and knowledge of texture quality or and something deeper aliveness into w- w- when working with in, in other ways as well i mean i think that that yeah, is a challenge that the, we could need to rise to ah, somehow
1: that's that's a good point that's really that's great put it has something to do with an, a kind of a new aesthetics in some sense yeah, is that yeah. a way of, mm. of recognizing the beauty of, um, uh, of some things that we are connecting to and that mm. trying to bring that forth either by by letting it be mm. or by co-shaping yeah. its force into something like for example this spoon mm. that I just showing you here now mm. it's a, which I've carved Mm. and And out of the wood material, mm. because i didn't have a spoon with me, so I just carved the spoon mm. and and trying that that this form is co shaped i mm. I, it, I had no idea it would look like this mm. yeah, at all, mm. but it, it in in the process of uh, connecting to that materiality mm. it uh, it appeared the form sort of came into it mm. and uh, for some people they may say well it's not really. Beautiful, I, I wouldn't say it's beautiful, but it's 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 a kind of a still a kind of aesthetics to it. Mm. It has some sense of I've been sensitive to its lines, to mm. its uh, materiality, to its textures and and and, and its uh, uh, different things in order to try to bring forth something. Mm. So I feel that the what we need for the future to to open our doors into a that which is hard to see, what uh, the world of imagination uh, is difficult to reveal to us, but uh, what what a world would look like when we are living um, sustainably and nature-friendly and so on. I feel perhaps that it is the artists and, the, and the, the, the poets that will open our doors, maybe the craft persons who will allow us into this um, understanding of how they co cove sh- cove shape something. Mm. There is a dialogue there yeah. with the material, and how we as uh, urban planners need to be a dialogue with the river running through the the city right. and and, yeah. and the, the winds and the permaculture is actually a good good kind of um, image of, for that. Mm. But in a sense, it's just something we all have done here. It's just a new name for for what many people have done for mm. thousands of years. You know, mm. living attuned mm. with the land and it 's a true kind of land ethic, like um I think uh, Aldo leopold would say so it's it 's trying to do the right thing, mm-hmm. that which grows out you know if i if i if I shape this spoon in a certain way or the material I, I carve it in a certain way, it may break mm-hmm. so it's, it's, it's the right thing would then be that which seems to work also to mm-hmm. seems to be a kind of um, a, a way of uh, uh, a kind of pragmatic understanding of it. It's not just mm. just functionality, but it's a kind of aesthetic purposive functionality that has some kind of relationship.
0: And I guess that was that was also one of Arnness's key ideas was this that everything is everything is possible. Yeah. The possibilism.
1: Exactly. He's called that possibilism and and he was quite a bit of an optimist. But he was an mm. optimist on behalf of the twenty second century he said. And the journalists thought, well, aren't you now getting a little too old? You know, it's the 21st century coming up. You know, this was 1997 or something. And he said, well, I think it's going to go downhill for a, for a while now. But then people become to awareness. People will come to awaken about this reconnection, this connection and start thinking more beautifully. And uh, I think um, uh, that is perhaps um, seeing that we humans, by coming back into the web of life, the fellowship, the union, the great community of all beings, mm. we are uh, actually being missed, mm. and we've been mm. missing them uh, in a way—our relatives and so on. I—I mm. think mm. a lot of people. When I take people into the forest and and nature and so on, that it's it's often people speak of a sorrow almost like some people call it an yeah. eco-sorrow or something but it's like a sorrow that what have i missed you know mm. all the, all what i have missed these years yeah. but also a sorrow of what we're doing yeah. to this connection yeah. so it's it's I'm, but that kind of sorrow is also part of life and so it's it's a way of healing yeah. in some sense what you yeah. say that that going through a sorrow process would be also coming back into understanding the true why, not true but the, the, the values that we we are important mm-hmm. for us and mm-hmm. and that we are caring for these values because caring for nature caring for uh, that cup or mm-hmm. that tree is really in some indirect internal way caring for oneself
0: and maybe also I mean we, I guess we maybe we can't talk about Ananess without talking also about his his um playfulness although he was you know a professor and uh, mm. working on all these serious things he was also a very uh, silly guy
1: yeah 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 well he was he was silly in the in the in a good sense you know he yeah. was he was it was a whole more ludens he was is a, a playful human and uh, my first meeting with arnie he was climbing inside a train tra, you know a, a car we were we were <laughs> we were driving uh, by train up to the cabin and and, uh, and he was sitting around um, and I was thinking, you know, I'm going to try to find a good question for him as of philosophical discussion. <laughs> and uh, he asked me, do you want to play? And I, I said, well, what do you mean, Do you like play and the philosophy, the concept of play or what, what do you, you want to discuss what plays or what it could be or mean or whatever? And he said, no, I just want to play. And, I said, <laughs> and I, he said, well, well, what do you want to play? And he said, I want to play follow the leader. And then he started to my, you know, great horror, to to climb inside the the, the, the train, and uh, he was traversing on the table or on the you know, on the on the on the stools and holding up on the, the,
0: on the, on the hat rack.
1: rack there, and um, and some people were saying. Oh, wow, this is Arnie Ness. Yeah, he's crazy, that guy. You know, that really, but who's the guy behind? So I was actually following him there, trying to follow around this uh, cart climbing. But it was such a fun thing, because on the one hand, he was saying when we came down, uh, finally ended that and sat down again, he said, you remember, Peringvar, you have to think that, you know, even though life is not a play, mm-hmm. it's important to play in life.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And And by that... All of the sort of ambition or the idea of sort of you know uh, trying to uh, be you know presenting oneself in a very sort of scholarly you know discussion with this great philosopher or whatever, I just fell down and I just be myself. So he he said one of the very important things is that in order for us to to be ourselves and flourish, which is important for all of life, uh, we have to break. A lot of those habits in our society, mm. and the habits of being outside of ourselves, defining ourselves of some kind of norm out there. Mm. So Arne said he loved to break norms. He loved to sort of challenge people in order to sort of have them do something unhabitual in order to sort of come to themselves more. That was his playful way of of awakening people to themselves. Mm.
0: In in terms of the this this reconnection, the great reconnection that we that we spoke about. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean I my my feeling is that everybody needs that there's no recipe sort of everybody needs to find their own way of yeah. um of perhaps deepening their relationship with the world but... Arne so called that
1: Svamarga. Sorry? Arne. Yeah. Yes. called that Marga. in uh, Sanskrit. He meant that, uh, which means your way. Mm. So everyone needs to find their way, yeah. which is quite personal. Yeah. But at the same time, we also need collective changes in a sense, a social changes. So it's, yeah. I'm trying to advocate, uh, uh, and, and Arne did as well, uh, a kind of interplay between individual, personal commitment, and also social. Uh, commitment as a kind of movement yeah. so deep ecology is a social movement it's not really a philosophy it's it's more of a, uh, a movement of people going into the depth of what is the heart of the problem and what we can do about it mm. and so that's uh, the depth of um, uh, that that he speaks of when it speaks of deep ecology how we are deeply rooted in in the problem but also the solutions and I, even though he was an optimist I think there is also ground to be a pessimist in this uh, work unfortunately but I find that uh, the the element of optimism and pessimism is so I think that in, in some way for me at least the optimism is is stronger because um, it's hard to say what can we say to to young people today also, or ourselves, you know, I mean, we should we just say, well, it's, there's no future or something like that? And mm. Of course not. We, we have to to find ways, and those ways, swamargas are personal and they are social. So I think we, we need to come together and create new forms of communities, new forms of neighborhoods that uh, cut across the human um, centeredness Mm. so that we are inviting into our communities like we are doing here while we're sitting in the forest the birds above us and the trees around us and the wind and the creek just down the hill here and all of that is sort of participating in the conversation so in some way some silence to let them speak could be proper (laughs) in some (laughs) respect I think they're probably tired of hearing me speak at least so I think that you know I guess that's why Quakers are so happy with silence you know because they they like silence is something that unites us mm. but words can often divide us because words are always interpreted in different ways depending mm. on whoever listens and so on but I hope these words are reached beyond perhaps just the sense of intellectual mm. sense of where they come from but rather also Felt in some degree. At mm-hmm. least they are words that are heartfelt, uh, coming out of that commitment to that old elder pine in mm-hmm. the forest outside Kungsberg.
0: Yeah. Thank you, and thank you, thank you to the fire, and thank you for the the pines for holding mm. our hammocks.
1: Yeah. Thank you.
0: As always, there are links to further reading in the show notes and on our website. And there's a longer version of this conversation available on our Patreon page, which is patreon.com forestofthought. Thanks to everyone who helped make this episode possible and thanks to Christian Stan at stoneproduction.no for our theme music. We'll be back in three weeks with another episode. Until then, take care.